So what is your vision for church? How would you define the ideal church? Good preaching? Good music? Good coffee? All of the above? Some of the above? It's probably something of a hard question to try and answer, you know, because we've just read Acts 2, so already our minds have got the spiritual answer that's there. So perhaps a more revealing question might be to ask, you know, what do you look for uh, if you were choosing a church? Now, we've all been to different churches. None of us grew up at Kingfisher. Well, I say that and I see... You grew up here, Matty, didn't you? You didn't have a choice. Uh, but for those of us who weren't born like half a decade ago, um, we, we've all come from, from different places. So we know what it's like to, to choose a church. Now, what is the criteria that you put into place? When there's a number of churches in the area, how do you choose which church you're going to join? Or maybe an even more revealing question is this, where are your energies directed we've all got limited energy we've all got limited time so where do you put your priorities in terms of church what are the things you prioritize with church where's your emotional investment what are the things that excite you what are the things that frustrate you what are those discussions that animate you what are the discussions that animate us as a church And the answer to those questions probably reveals something of our personal vision for the ideal church. And then the next question is this. Is your vision, is our vision, the same as God's vision? Now we're in Acts 2, Acts 2, 42 to 47. We read something which gives us kind of a picture of the ideal church. Did a quick Google search on sermons on this passage. There's loads of sermons on this passage. People love preaching on it. It's a great reorientating passage, isn't it? What does a healthy church look like and how do we get there? And instinctively, those are two questions that we like to ask. The what and the how. What's it look like? How do we get there? But I think there's a crucial middle step that we need to take. There's a middle question we need to ask and that's a question of why. And the reason for why, we'll see in a little bit. I'll, I'll tell you why for the why. But there are three things we're going to look at this evening. Then We're going to look at the what, then the why, and then we're going to look at the how. So we'll begin with the what. The what, what is the vision, let's say, of the ideal church? In some ways, you know, these verses, they kind of speak for themselves as we go through it. There'll just be a few things that I'm going to draw out. But as we read through these verses again, and as we draw some of these things out, think about how does this compare? How does this challenge your views of an ideal church? Those things where you're emotionally invested, where your energies are invested. So verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves to these things. And this is where their energies were invested. This is where they were emotionally invested. And this verse, verse 42, kind of acts as something of a summary that gets unpacked in the following verses, even in the following chapters. 
So we'll come back to some of these things as we go through. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. There's this consciousness here that God is at work in the midst of these disciples. You may recall uh, last week, uh, Rich was preaching earlier on in chapter 2, and it speaks of the signs and wonders that God confirms through Jesus. And here we see these signs and wonders continuing, which is one of the themes we see in Acts. It's the continued work of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a bit more of that, certainly in chapter 3. So this work of Jesus continuing through the apostles. Uh, Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Now this speaks of the fellowship that they devoted themselves to in verse 42. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now the grammar in this passage suggests that this is an ongoing activity. It's not that you join this community, you sell all your possessions, and then you come and you live in this commune. It's not this structure that is imposed uh, on the early church. This is the response of people's hearts. As needs arise, people sell their possessions. Uh, They sell any property in order to provide for those who are in need. Uh, This is, in some ways, the spontaneous uh, generosity of people's hearts. And then every day they continue to meet in the temple courts. Now remember, at this point in time, the disciples are in Jerusalem. Uh, The temple was a place of worship. Now, as far as we know, all the disciples at this point are Jewish. And so that was the place uh, you would go. That, that was the place of worship. And they met there every day. And we see in Acts, the temple courts was a place where the apostles taught. It was a place where there were regular prayers. There were set prayers. And so when we go back to verse 42, actually when it talks about they devoted themselves to prayer, is literally to the prayers, which would include a lot of the, the times of set prayer in the temple. But devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we read occurs in the temple, uh, and to prayer, this is something that they did every day. So this was a daily commitment to the apostles' teaching, a daily commitment to prayer together. Uh, And then they continue to meet in their homes. Continuing on verse 46, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Now, the breaking of bread here, uh, there's, you know, there's some debate whether the breaking of bread in verse 42, is that referring to uh, the Lord's Supper? Maybe, maybe not. Here, verse 46, it seems to just refer to shared uh, meals. So the Jewish tradition is when you gave thanks, you would take the bread and you would break it. And so they're meeting together in homes, they're breaking bread, they're eating together, they're committed uh, to this fellowship, this devotion of life together. And again, this isn't something that is forced on them. This isn't something that is imposed. They do it with glad and sincere hearts. And eating together held more cultural significance then than it probably does for us in the West. To eat with someone, it was a sign of equality. You were expanding the borders of the family. You were bringing people into your family network. And this is what these people are doing, with glad and sincere hearts. As we said, it's not something that's forced. Uh, It's this overflow 
uh, of the heart, praising God. There's great joy. There's a beauty that is seen uh, within the church community. And there's also a beauty that is seen from those outside looking in. So also verse 47, they enjoy the favour of all the people. And certainly some of the religious leaders uh, were very favourably disposed towards the church. But on the whole, the communities around them, they look at the church and they are thankful for the church being there. And this may also potentially be translated uh, as the church looking favourably on people. But, but either way, you know, this is speaking of the work of God in the midst. They are the salt and the light in their community. And then we read the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. The church is growing. It's this missionary outpost that continues to grow. And so in summary, we might say the ideal church is presented here as a Bible teaching, community caring, persistently praying, gospel sharing, impactful church. And it's good for us to ask this question. Now, how does this compare to our image of an ideal church? What we think about, what we look for, what we prioritize. But before we simply just go and do likewise, there's another question that we need to be asking first, and that's the why. Now, why is Luke telling us this? Why is Luke telling us this? You know, why is why has God directed Luke to write in this way? What is it that God is communicating through the means and the purpose of Luke writing this? And this really takes us to the question of, well, what is the purpose of Acts? Why is Acts written? Is Acts a recipe or is it a record? And the way that we answer that question is going to influence how we apply these verses. Because a recipe says you follow these steps and you get this result. So if we read this as a recipe, here's the recipe. Okay, what, what are the steps? Verse 42, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Uh, verse 45, another, they sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Um, partway through verse 46, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Uh, second half of verse 47, what's the result? And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. If you want a recipe, a recipe for success, you know, what do you do? Well, well they you know, do this, devote yourselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, sell your possessions, meet together. Okay, we can't meet in the temple courts, but, but meet together daily. And as a result, the Lord is going to bless us. He will add to our number daily those who are being saved. Now that is how the church is going to grow. That is a recipe reading of Acts. Is that the right way that we should be reading it? I don't think so. And this is why we need to ask the why question. We've been given this, this description of really what we might describe as the ideal church, but why? What's the purpose? And this may be something of, of old ground for us, but it's worth us just covering in order to make sure that we answer this question well. So Luke, Luke Acts, two-volume work. We know that, don't we? Uh, and in Luke 1, we read of the purpose of writing. This is how God inspired Luke. 
And so this is how we need to be reading this. It says it in Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So what is Lukacs? Is it a recipe or is it a record? Well, it's quite clearly a record. It's written to give an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled. It's a record. So think of Luke acts more like a Great British Bake Off than a recipe book. Now, the Great British Bake Off, it's a record of a baking show. Now, you see what happens. Now, can you pick up tips? Can you learn things from it to apply to your own baking? Absolutely. In the same way as we read through Luke and Acts, are there things that we can pick up from it? Are there things that we can apply? Absolutely. But it's not a recipe. We shouldn't read it as a recipe. It's a record of these things that have been fulfilled. So Luke and Acts, uh, a record of events written to show how God's purposes are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the question is, how is this passage here in Acts 42 to 47 doing that? Well, let's go back to verse 42 and ask this question. Who are the they? They devoted themselves the apostles teach. Who, who are the they that have been referred to in this passage? And to answer that, of course, we need to go back a few verses. So if we look back at verse 40, uh, Peter speaking to the crowd, uh, and it summarizes by saying, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized in about 3,000 were added to the number that day. So who are the they? The they are those who have heeded uh, Peter's plea, that they've accepted the message of Christ, that they've been baptised and brought into this community of Jesus' followers. But notice Peter's plea in verse 40. He's saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And these aren't empty words. These are words that echo a famous song uh, in Scripture. It was a song in Deuteronomy 31. In Deuteronomy 31, God instructs Moses, teach this song. You can read the song in chapter 32. And God says, teach this song to the people of Israel. It's a song that is to act as a witness against Israel because God knows what his people are disposed to do. Despite everything that he's done for them, everything that he gives them, they're going to turn away from him. They're going to follow their own ways and false gods. And they're described as a crooked or a corrupt generation. And this is something that we see played out time and time and time again through Scripture. Now from the end of Deuteronomy all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, played out time and time again. But here in Acts, there's this decisive change. Now Peter is saying, be saved from this, be saved from this corrupt generation. I echoing back to Deuteronomy 32. This pattern in Israel's history is about to be broken. And so Peter 
pleads with the people, be saved from this corrupt generation. And who uh, are these people? How are they saved from this corrupt generation? Well, they accept this message about Christ and they're baptized. They're brought into this new community. And then verse 42 describes to us the life of this Jesus community. See, the ideal is realized. And what we read in verse 42 to 47 is something of a snapshot of Old Testament hopes of God's people being fulfilled. If we ask, you know, why is this passage given to us? Well, Luke is writing to show the certainty of these things that have been fulfilled. Now, this is it. This is God's purpose being fulfilled and it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This isn't giving us a recipe to follow. This is a record that the ideal, God's purposes, are fulfilled in Christ. God's purpose to create for himself a people that are his own, eager to do what is good. That is fulfilled in Christ. And so that takes us to the, the how. How are we to apply these verses? As we read these verses, the what question, it reorientates our vision. They test, they challenge our priorities, our personal priorities, our priorities as a church. That's what the what does as we, we read this. It's a reorientating. But the why and the how, it then lifts the focus from our methodologies to God's means. And we need to ask ourselves again, how does all this come about? Verse 42 to 47. We may look at this. We may say, yes, this looks wonderful. This looks great. This is what we want to grow in. But how does this all come about? What marks a change from being a corrupt generation to being a community like the people that we read here? What is it that makes a difference between looking like the rest of the world and living as the people of God. Okay, let's just go back a few verses. Verse 38. When the people say, what shall we do? Peter replies, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we're told, in the following verses, that this group, a group numbering around 3,000, that they accept this message, they're baptized. Interestingly, we don't get anything explicitly said about them receiving the Holy Spirit. Peter's just said that. He said, if you repent, if you're baptized, you will receive the Spirit. Now, this promise is for you, for your children, all who are far off, for whom all whom the Lord will call. This promise is made. We're told that they repent they ex by accepting the message. They're baptized. And then we go straight into verse 42. We're not explicitly told that they receive this gift of the Spirit. We're shown it. We're shown it in the transformed community life that we see. These people who are saved from this corrupt generation are the same people that we read about in verse 42 to 47. What is it that makes a difference between looking like the rest of the world and living as the people of God? It is the work of the Spirit that makes a difference. The Spirit of God that has been poured out 
by Jesus Christ, as we saw last week, because through Jesus, sins are forgiven and new life is given. Verse 42 doesn't come about because the apostles have somehow landed on the perfect strategy for church. It comes about because of the work of Jesus Christ and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's not enough for us to have a biblical vision of what the church should be. We also need to have a biblical vision of how the church is to be. Because it can be so easy to to read these verses as some of those sermons that I looked uh, online do. And it's saying, right, you know, this is what we need to be. This is what we need to do. This is where we need to focus our energies. Now, that might be in a a daily uh, Bible class. It might be in daily prayer meetings. It it might be in having poor relief. It might be in more fellowship meals. It it might be a greater focus in an evangelism. And these things aren't bad. These things are good. Now, these things are things that we read about here in Scripture, but we shouldn't confuse the what with a why and the how. Don't mistake the fruit with a root. These verses aren't presented as things that we create. These are things that are created in us. And so we mustn't let our vision of the church, no matter how biblically informed it is, obscure our vision of Jesus. Because it is by Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, that these things that we read about here are brought about. This is where this community comes from. It is a supernatural community. And so we come to the question, what about us? Oh, and what do we do you know, when we read these verses and they seem foreign to us? They don't seem reflective of our own personal lives. When we read this and it looks like we're reading of a completely different world. You know, and it may be that we've been chasing our own different vision of the ideal church. We've invested our energies and our focus in something else. And our our vision of what the ideal church is needs to be tested against Scripture. It needs to be challenged by Scripture. But even when we do have that biblical vision, now perhaps at times our vision of the ideal church, even when it's biblically informed, it eclipses our vision of Jesus. We need that vision of Christ. Now sometimes I can, I can find myself wishing that there was just a second Pentecost. They seemed so simple back then. It was a big, boom. Massive change and transformation. But there isn't a second Pentecost. Pentecost is a once for all event, never to be repeated. And yet because of that, we have a greater confidence. You see, we're not waiting for a second Pentecost. We don't need to wait for Pentecost because Pentecost has already come. And that day of Pentecost has come and gone, but the power of Pentecost has come. Because Jesus Jesus has empowered this new life 
the one who has poured out his spirit on the church, the power of the spirit is now present. Present with the church to effect such radical change and transformation. I think this is a reason why we see revivals throughout church history. Because we're not waiting for that second Pentecost. So what are we to do? We're not waiting for God to do something. No, we then are called to proclaim and to pray. Because we need to see and we need to seek Jesus and the power of his spirit to build the church. Christ has done everything that is necessary. We're not waiting for him to act. But he may well be waiting for us to ask. And so let's do that now and let's continue to do that. Continue to seek and to see Christ. Father, we thank you that all your promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. Lord, that you have created Lord, your people. The, the reason the church exists, the reason we exist is because of your grace. And yet we read passages Lord, like this and Lord, we are challenged of, of how far short so often we fall uh, even of our own aspirations, Lord, let alone of what it is that we, we read that you call your people to. Lord, lives that are radically changed and transformed. Lord, lives that are totally given over to love and service of you and service of one another. And we recognize that in ourselves, we cannot achieve that. Though so often we, and I struggle to get out of bed in the morning. Don't we thank you for your great power towards us. Lord, your life, as we sung earlier, the Lord Jesus Christ, our servant king, and we are called to, to follow him, not because we just you know, pull up our socks and grit our teeth, but because he has poured out his spirit that we might be changed and transformed, Lord, that we may walk that path, and we pray that we would. Father, would you keep us from obscuring that, that vision of Christ Lord, with our, our zeal and desire to, to grow, but that our zeal and desire would be rightly directed. Or that we would see, that we would treasure Christ, that we would pursue Christ, that we would come before you with all our weakness and with all our frailty, that we would recognize that this is not the end of the story, that the end of us Lord, it is the beginning of a beautiful testimony of your grace. And so wherever we are this evening, Father, however we're feeling, Lord, we recognize that we still have far to go. And will you stir us that we would spend our lives pursuing Christ, seeking him, Lord, seeking his glory, Lord, and being changed more and more to reflect that. Father, that we may know the power of Christ's resurrection in order that we may share in the fellowship of his suffering. Lord, awaken our hearts. Lord, and empower us by your spirit, Lord, to live as your people in a manner worthy of your glorious gospel. Amen.